For 1,500 years after the death of Jesus, God's people had to come to worship to hear God's word read. That's the only place they could hear it. We, we were a fairly illiterate people for a long time because we didn't have access to read God's word until the printing press came out. And so when we read God's word publicly, you know, Paul says to Timothy, do not neglect, do not neglect the public reading of scripture. When we read it together in worship, it's a part of our worship service because God's word is static in an ever-changing world. It is true, it is living and active, and it's meant to change you. So if you're able, let's stand together as we read from Galatians chapter 2. I'll read verses 11 through 14. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like the Jew, how can you force Gentiles to live like Jews? And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Please. We answer the questions that we ask. In the first century, the question that was asked that had to be answered was, must you keep the ceremonial Old Testament law to be in right status with God? The questions we ask today are different. Every culture answers the questions that are asked of them. Questions we ask today are questions like, how old do your children need to be before you give them a phone? How much screen time should they have? How long can they live on junk food? What are the limits for our young new driver to drive their car around Tulsa? We ask all kinds of good questions that beg us to have really good answers for those questions. And in the first century, they're asking very important questions about the relationship between the Old Testament and the New. And what we've learned all throughout our series of Galatians is this very important truth that what is required for you to have a right standing with God is not in any way dependent upon your place of birth, whether Brookside or Brooklyn, whether America or Afghanistan. It is not dependent upon the way you dress. It is not dependent upon any ceremonial law. It is dependent solely on this, your faith in the finished work of Jesus, your faith alone. That is what makes us Protestants. We protested against the Catholic, Roman Catholic Church in the 16th century over this very crucial doctrine. Everybody loves a good fight, right? And somewhere buried in all of our questions, we find the, qu the kind of question that, we're worth, that we find worth fighting for. 
And I don't know what that question is for you, but you've got the question somewhere. What is it that you fight for? What is it that you argue about? What is it that you take a stand over? Everybody loves a good battle. We're about to watch one this afternoon when the New England Patriots take on the Atlanta Falcons. 116 million of us are going to watch this battle as we sit down with 28 million pounds of chips and queso. And as we enjoy 8 million pounds of guacamole and we eat 1.25 billion wings. Mm, we love a good fight. In December... Right? We, people who liked UFC flocked to see Ronda Rousey fight Amanda Nunes. Last year, it seemed like every second, third, and fourth grade boy in America ran to the movie theater to figure out if Steve Rogers, Captain America, and Tony Stark, Iron Man, would fight. And they did. We love a good battle. And here in the text, you have probably the most tense, battle outside of the trial of Jesus that we have recorded in the New Testament. You have Peter and you have Paul. You have brothers who are locked in arms together for the gospel who take up arms against each other in these five verses. You have allies who face off head to head and they're struggling, they're fighting, they're arguing over what is the chief unifying principle of our church the gospel. So, let's answer two questions this morning. Why did they fight, and why does it matter? Why did they fight? First question. Look at your text with me. Reason number one, they fought, because Peter, the text says, stood condemned. But when Cephas came to Antioch, Paul says, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. The word in Greek is katagnosmenos, which means to be condemned in the sense of cut off from the fellowship of God. You are living outside the bounds of what one who believes the gospel acts and lives like Peter, Paul would say. Hey, Peter, do you remember in Deuteronomy in Deuteronomy 28 and following, when Moses says the blessings for God's people are these and the curses belong to you if you do not believe the gospel. Peter, you're living like you are cursed because you're walking in duplicity and you're walking in hypocrisy. You're not living like a Christian. And in Paul's confrontation, you get the principle of the text, which is this. It's the big idea that you have on your sheet before you. It is confusing, hypocritical, and it is disastrous for the unity of the church when we act out of fear of what others may think rather than walk in line with the truth of the gospel wherever we live and with whomever we share company. That's the principle. It's confusing because people watch you. It's hypocritical because your heart is divided and it is utterly disastrous for the unity of the church. Whenever you fear those who reject you and you begin to walk outside the bounds of the gospel, wherever it is that you live, with, ever, with whomever you share company. You see why Paul would be so upset 
because you have to think about where both of these men came from. They both grew up in a culture where they, their Israel, good Jews, lived by certain laws and they were watertight. There were clean laws and there were unclean laws. And these clean laws, there are a gazillion of them. You know, you couldn't touch a dead body. You couldn't, uh, if you, um, um, you had, um, you know, uh, uh, you ate certain foods, you were considered unclean. If you wore certain clothing, you were considered unclean. You know, if um, those who were going through menstruation were considered unclean. A nocturnal admission made you unclean. And you couldn't go to the temple. You couldn't draw near to God during those seasons. You had to be able to make clean. And how? Through the shedding of blood. And even if you did everything right, even if you struggled with every ounce of energy in your body to be clean, even the high priest, who was supposed to be the example of what cleanliness meant, even he had to have a sacrifice for the iniquity of his holy things before he would go in to the Holy of Holies once a year in the Day of Atonement and with a rope around his ankle, lest he sin in the presence of God and have to be dragged out because nobody could go into his presence except the high priest. And here Paul and Peter have met together just before this and with John and James, they had said, you do not have to keep the ceremonial laws of the Old Testament in order to have status with God, to be accepted by him because Jesus was the true Israel who came. He was the clean one who took upon him on the cross all of our uncleanliness. And once for all, his blood was shed so that those like me and like you who are unclean might become clean in the Father's sight. And this was so real to Peter that he had a dream about it. In Acts chapter 10 and Acts chapter 11, you can read about it. Do you remember that dream that Peter had? It was like a, a sheet with the edges folded up. And in that sheet were all kinds of animals, clean and unclean, reptiles and birds. And, and Jesus says, well, Peter, you can eat. And he said, no, Lord, I don't want to uh, make myself unclean. And Jesus says, I fulfilled all those things. I have made you clean because I took upon you all the uncleanliness of everything the Old Testament talked about. I'm the fulfillment of the clean laws. And Peter, when he's telling this story, he is called out by a Gentile centurion named Cornelius. And Peter himself says in Acts 10, 27 and 28, and he said to him that you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation but God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for by a Gentile, he came without objection. So Peter was called out by Paul because he stood condemned. Because he was acting in a way that was confusing those who were looking at Peter. And he was acting with hypocrisy. Text says he was called out because he, was, he stood condemned. The other reason he was called out is because whenever the people that Peter feared showed up, he chickened out. Peter was having meals with Gentiles. He was eating with them. And the word to eat in Greek means more than just to share a meal like you and I might go to lunch together. It has connotations of worship. Like Peter is worshiping with Gentiles. They're partaking of the Lord's Supper together. They're in fellowship as God's visible body in Antioch. 
And then when these Jews show up who were presumably sent from James, although James probably didn't give him authority to come, they said that James sent them to give themselves a sense of trumped up authority. When they came, Peter slowly and gradually over time began to distance himself from the Gentiles because he feared what the Jews might think of him. And so Peter began to say, there's one faith, there's one Lord. Ah, but there's two tables. This is kind of the equivalent of if some very well-known preacher that you might know were to stand up and say one Sunday, we are going to reverse the civil rights movement and from henceforth and forevermore, separate buses for African-Americans and for Caucasians. Separate church services for African-Americans and Caucasians. Separate water fountains for Africans. This is the import of what Paul thought Peter was doing. And if the Apostle Paul hadn't stepped in, we would have a divided church and you and I would not know which one was right. Both called by Jesus himself, both apostles. Paul called Peter out first because Peter stood condemned in his hypocrisy. And secondly, because he feared the circumcision party. And Paul knew this brother well enough to know that this same Peter was the same one who turned his back earlier, didn't he? Upon him, with, because a maid, a, a maid servant saw him and he denied Jesus in Matthew 16. And then Paul sees him here again. The same systemic sin deep in Peter's heart. And he's turning his back because he fears what other people think of him. And he's not walking in line with the truth of the gospel. Why did they fight? They didn't fight because Paul was trying to show that he was the big man in town, the new convert who had the great testimony. They fought because Paul knew that at the core of this issue was the gospel. And justification by faith alone is what unifies Christians. That your status with God is not dependent upon your obedience. His acceptance of you is not based upon any external factor. God shows no partiality. God's acceptance of you comes solely by the means of faith alone. And that is why Paul hammers home this whole motif of freedom and bondage all throughout Galatians. Like if you read through Galatians carefully, three times freedom, seven times free, two times bondage, one time enslaved, three times slave, two times slavery, two times slaves, plural. 20 times Paul brings this internal battle up of which this external battle between Peter and Paul just points us to. And it is a battle that doesn't belong only to these two brothers. It is a battle that is deep within my own heart and in yours. Because we very subtly begin to believe it is subtle and it is dangerous. We subtly begin to believe that we can have fellowship with people who have the same style we have who are the same socioeconomic level that we are, who have the same education level that we are, that look like us, that talk like us. They're in the same denomination. Listen, racism has no place in the church. 
It is antithetical to the gospel. And most of us have no problem saying that. But you know what else has no place in the church? Snobbery about denominationalism. There's no place in the church. Being afraid to learn from those who are outside of Trinity has no place in the church. We don't require as elders of this church you to hold any other central truth except one. That you know the only requirement for salvation is the admission that you do not deserve salvation. And by faith you trust in Jesus' finished work. So while we can say classism, racism, different socioeconomic levels, gender is like, all of that is easy to talk about. But friends, we so easily begin to divide the church in other ways too. So when the outside world looks in at evangelicalism, looks in at the Reformed Church today, they're not impressed because we have found ways to divide ourselves based upon whether you believe in the five points of Calvinism, whether you listen to this person or you follow this guy or whatever it is. What Owasso and Tulsa need is healing in the church. And the way that you heal is you recognize, are you walking in line with the truth of the gospel? Because it is possible for you to believe the gospel with your mouth and say it in your confession, just like Peter did, but act hypocritically and in a very confusing way. And it's disastrous for the church. It's disastrous. And the problem doesn't start with you. The problem actually starts with me as I see it. Because I know that as much as I yearn to have fellowship with other pastors in town, and I yearn for Christians in this city who have just been wrought by church splits in Tulsa and in Owasso, I long for them to come together. I have to first repent in my own heart and admit that every elder in our church, and in fact, every member of our church, they have a right to hunt my property. You have a right to call me out if I'm ever not walking in line with the truth of the gospel. That if we as a church begin to present a subculture that says, not only is it faith in Jesus, but it's you must listen to this radio station or you must listen to this kind of music or you must whatever it is. We want a diverse church. We want a church where people are centrally focused on one thing. That is the finished work of Jesus. That his righteousness alone is what unifies us. Because that frees us up. That is where true freedom is really found, isn't it? So that we have the ability like Paul to come to each other in love and to call each other out and to know how to do it with discernment. Did you notice that earlier in Galatians chapter two, Paul came to Peter and he didn't come publicly when he first came to Jerusalem. What did he do? It says he came privately before them. Why? Because Paul wanted privately to confer with them about the gospel. Hey, here's the gospel that I'm preaching. Let me hear your gospel. Is it the same? Okay, it is. Wonderful. Not even Titus, verse, two, uh, verse 3 of chapter 2, has to be circumcised. Great. But here, it's scandalous. It's in public. And so Paul has no problem walking up to Peter in front of everybody, getting in his face and saying, if you, a Jew, are acting like a Gentile and you're forcing Gentiles to act like Jews, when we just decided they didn't have to, you are not walking in line with the truth of the gospel. And Peter 
has the humility to hear what Paul had to say. Now, the text doesn't tell us how Peter responded, but we know later from his epistle how he responded because he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ according to his great mercy because he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable. It is undefiled and it is unfading. Kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now only for a little while you're enduring great trials. Peter knew that his salvation was undefiled and it was kept in heaven for him because he knew he himself wasn't even strong enough to always walk in line with the truth of the gospel. The gospel is not subjective. It is an objective reality. And it must land with a hammer's blow upon your heart to ask questions of you that you need desperately to ask. Where is your identity? Where is your worth? And those questions can only be answered when you recognize not what, but whose you are. It is confusing, it is hypocritical, it is disastrous for the church when we act out of fear of what others may think rather than walk in line with the truth of the gospel wherever we live and with whomever we share company. Now, practically together, what does this really matter? What is this fight that Peter and Paul have, this face-to-face confrontation? What does it really matter in your life? Well, it matters intellectually. Because as I mentioned earlier, we have the same pressures to divide the church. God does not have fellowship with you on the basis of your race or of your culture, of your class, of your style. God has fellowship with you because of his grace. Have you received it? Has your heart been open to the good news that Jesus accepts you just as you are? that the only thing that you need to realize is that you are a broken sinner. Do you know this? Please don't harden your hearts. You'll be subject to the covenant curses of those who harden their hearts. Do not harden your hearts to the Lord. Do you see that it is grace alone that saves you by the instrumentality, by the means of faith, not upon what you must do? If you're part of a racial minority, you know this is true. And if you're part of a denominational minority, you also begin to see this happen. That you begin to kind of pride yourself about being in the minority. This is true. This is true of even of us in this church as a conservative Presbyterian church in a world where there are very few other Presbyterian churches, Reformed churches, And it's easy for us to feel like we're in the minority, that we have a different understanding of Scripture, that we have a different way of talking about the gospel. But our sin rises to the surface whenever we begin to think that I am more noble than the dominant denominations in this city. 
that we have suffered more, that we've been oppressed more, that somehow you have like the inside track, please be so careful about the subtleties. This is true if you're a minority race, which some of us in this room may be, or it's true if you're in a minority denomination. You begin to make and feel like you are better than other people. That is antithetical to the gospel. And you ought to help one another see that in each other. That's why we have community groups. We do them in cycles. We're starting a spring cycle these three months. We take a month off. We start a new cycle. These community groups are important for us because it's a place for us to grow in knowing one another. It's a place for us to grow and have the chips to spend on confronting each other when we need to confront one another. But you can't really do that until you've loved on each other, until you know each other well. And if you've ever been confronted in love by a brother, you'll never forget it because it's one of the most loving things you've ever had happen to you. My own brother one time took me to dinner. And when I was younger, he called me out for tendencies that I had had that I had just denied and been blind to for so many years where I had rejected a group of friends because they didn't act and look and dress. They weren't as good as me, so I thought. It was the most loving thing he has ever done to me. It's beautiful. I eat every week on Mondays with a group of pastors, every Monday. And they know within 10 seconds of me walking in that room how I'm doing. And I've had those brothers call me out before. It's beautiful. Do you have somebody like that in your life? Bring down those walls. Invite them in. And when you confront somebody, how do you do it? You do it in meekness and tenderness, Galatians says in Galatians 6.1, lest you also be tempted. You do it as Matthew 18 calls us to do it. You do it privately, unless the sin is a scandalous sin. You do it privately first, and then if they don't believe you, you bring others with you to confront them. And if they reject you still, then you bring it to the elders of the church. And if they reject the elders, and then we remove them from the church. Do you have people in your life who confront you? Are you willing to be confronted? Your acceptance is secure. It can never be taken away. Intellectually, we're tempted to divide the church. Behaviorally, we have to be able to confront each other, to love each other enough to hold each other's feet to the fire. Uh, practically, we have to repent of the sins that we see, our classism, of our racism. That's not the sin that you repent of. You repent of the deeper sin of forgetting your gracious welcome by Jesus, that you too were brought in. When you were outsider, you were taken in. Paul essentially says to Peter, Peter, you've forgotten Jesus' love for you. Culturally, we learned something. One of you sent me this week an article in the Huffington Post by a guy named Robert Hall who wrote an article called The New Religion, Destructive Escalation. It describes the process in psychology described as destructive escalation, where a culture begins to retaliate against some situation or some group of people, and then they begin to stereotype retaliate, then they stereotype, then they disassociate from them, and then they polarize the conversation, 
and then they violate one another. And as Christians, as I read this article, I thought, oh, how the gospel calls us to just the opposite, doesn't it? It calls us to see our gracious welcome in Jesus. It calls us to receive Christ's love for you in the gospel, for you. It causes us to move toward each other by listening to them, befriending them, asking good questions. It causes us to confront them with the gospel when necessary. And it causes us to be willing to be misunderstood when you stand for what is right. Paul was willing to be radically misunderstood by all those who were watching him. Of course, it doesn't seem like that because he wrote the book that we're studying. But can you imagine the Jews, what they thought of Paul? Paul just says, you can go do whatever you want. You're saved by grace. And of course, Paul doesn't believe that. That's the second half of every one of his epistles. He calls you to obey the law. That's what God causes us to do and to be as we become more like his people. So friends, listen, there are lots of practical things to learn from here. Intellectually, we recognize that there are divisions in the church that we ourselves can heal that some of you are uniquely gifted to heal through your friendships with other people in this town. Practically, it means that we recognize when it's okay to confront somebody in public and when it's okay to confront somebody in private. And you know how to confront. You do it in love because you're confronted right now with the preaching of the gospel. You're so used to being confronted yourself and you know that your security is held for you in the heavens, unfading and undefiled, that you can in love move toward other people when it's hard. It's true of us culturally, where we recognize that we have a lot to learn from others who don't believe the same thing we do if they're in Christ. Do you have ears to listen to them? Aspects of the gospel that are seen as beautiful. Knowing God's word humbles you. Being his people melts you because you see the beauty of Jesus' acceptance for you that can never change for you. And you can only begin to do that when you see him when you see him this week some of you may have seen the video that um, I put on Facebook where Barry Black who is the chaplain to the U.S. Senate preached at the National Day of Prayer it's the best four minutes could be the best four minutes you've had all week it's fantastic and Barry Black says even at the age of 10 I had sufficient analytical skills to know that the value of an, of an object is based upon the price someone is willing to pay and then it dawned on me this little guy that I was in the inner city that for me that God sent what John 3 calls in Greek the monogenes the only one of its kind his only begotten son to die for me no one Black says was able to make me feel inferior again. And he goes on to say, I really wanted to know this guy. Who was it? Who is this man? And he searched the scriptures. And he opened Genesis and he found the creator God. And he read Exodus and he found the great I am. And he read through Numbers and he found there is Jesus, the star and the scepter. He found in Deuteronomy that Jesus was the rock. He found in Joshua that Jesus was the captain of the Lord's army. He found in Judges that Jesus was the great deliverer. He found in 1 Samuel that Jesus was the Lord of hosts. Can't get away from him. In Job, he is the redeemer. In the Psalms, he is the great shepherd. In Proverbs, 
He is the beloved. This Jesus loves you with an everlasting, eternal, unchanging love. In the Old Testament prophets, Zechariah says that he is the branch. In Malachi, Jesus is the messenger of the new covenant. In Matthew, Jesus is called the Savior. In Mark, he's called the Son of Man. In Luke, he's called the Great Physician. In John, he is the Word made flesh. Do you see him? He gives you the power to be able to repent and grow in your faith. In Acts, he's the one that gives us the power to be witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. All through Paul's epistles and Philippians, he is the one whose name is above every name, that at that name, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In Galatians, he's the fulfillment of every ceremonial law. In Ephesians, he is the one who brings the church in to fruition and into wholeness together as one body. In Colossians, he is the one who holds everything together by the word it says of his power. In Jude, he is the one who will keep you from stumbling and who is able to present you before the Father in heaven blameless without spot or wrinkle and great joy to his glory. Do you know Jesus? Friends, he's here. And the good news that he died for you is what unifies us by faith alone, not by cultural conditions at all. In John, it says, Jesus, he says he was taken to the Isle of Patmos in the Aegean Sea, and he had a dream. And he saw Jesus. And what did Jesus do? In Revelation 3.20, Jesus supped with us. Like to have dinner with someone in the ancient Near East was more than it is today. Jesus had fellowship with you. He drew near to you and then he raised the stakes when he did what we're about to do together. And he gave the Lord's Supper. And he says, this is the time for us to renew our fellowship together and to renew your fellowship with the Lord. Because in Revelation, John says Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the beginning and the end. And the time that we determine what is time, the measure by which we determine time is not what your watch says. It is the day when the final elect of God comes to faith in Jesus. And then he will descend from the clouds with a trump and the world will be renewed. And all of us will say goodbye once for all to sin. And we in our glorified resurrected bodies, if we've died, will rise again from the graves. And if we're still living, we'll be with him forever, made new. It'll be wonderful. What began in the garden will come back to a garden that becomes a city and we will be as we were created to be without spot or wrinkle with great joy and this is what we are supposed to call each other to as God's people it is the question that we ask we should ask as God's people not can we dabble in the cult of consumerism and will our children be richer than we are but will our children treasure Jesus like we treasure Jesus well, they see that their only righteousness is built not on the alliances that we make, not built on the church that you go to. It's not built on the government, the executive, the legislative, or the judicial branches of government. Your faith is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. And you dare not stand 
in the sweetest frame, but you wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock, we stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. When darkness veils his lovely face, I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Amen? All other ground is sinking sand. His oath, his covenant, his blood. Support me in the whelming flood when every earthly prop gives way. Jesus then is all my hope and stay. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. Say it with me. All other ground is sinking sand. When he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may we then in him be found, clothed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before his throne. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. Say it with me. All other ground is sinking sand. Friends, all other ground is sinking sand. Amen.